0: I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. I think, then, that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released." Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make a full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. Literally, he is divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate, and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But if my opin- in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, these are these are interesting, even difficult words, but we acknowledge they are your word, and so we ask that you would give us insight uh, into them uh, through your Spirit and through Tom's teaching. And we ask that, as Paul says in this uh, this chapter, that we would live our lives as though this were not the final chapter. Help us to live in the present, in light of the future. For your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning.
1: In his excellent sermon titled The Blessings of Being Single that focuses on this same passage, John MacArthur, uh, reads a couple of humorous poems from a series of articles that was published originally in Ladies Home Journal in the late 1800s. Uh, back then, by the way, the magazine, the actual magazine title was Ladies Home Journal and Practical Housekeeper. Uh, I suspect that the, the uh, editorial philosophy of that magazine has changed rather a lot since then. <laughs> One of the poems that Brother MacArthur read was from a woman who wrote, the only reason why I've never wed is as clear as the day and as easily said. Two lovers I've had who'd have made me a bride, but the trouble was just that I couldn't decide. Whenever John came, I was sure it was he that I cared for the most, but but with Charlie by me, my hands clasped in his and his eyes fixed on mine, twas as easy as could be to say, I'll be thine. Now tell me, what was a poor maiden to do who couldn't to save her make choice between the two. I dillied and I dallied, and I couldn't decide till Johnny got married and Charlie, he died. (laughs) And that is the reason why I've never wed for how could I help it as everyone said when Johnny was married and Charlie was dead. I think a good many young Christian men and women in our day find a lot to relate to in that little poem. Young adults who do marry are getting married later and later on average these days. And singleness is not widely considered to be a blessed state of affairs among Christian, young Christian men and women. (laughs) But this is, this is an exceedingly practical passage. And in this passage, Paul presents singleness in a very, very different light than we may be accustomed to. One of the most striking things about this morning's, passage is, this morning's passage is the great pains to which Paul goes to make sure we understand that his counsel to unmarried Christians to remain single is not a command of the Lord, but it is the opinion of one who has been proven trustworthy when it comes to rightly representing the ways of God. Paul left no wiggle room in the previous passage when he commanded married believers, as far as the decision was in their hands, to stay married, even if they were married to unbelievers. But this passage is different. In the first and last passage that consists of verses 25 to 40, Paul says that what he is presenting here is his opinion. But he's quick to add in both of those verses that he believes his counsel to be trustworthy and to rightly represent the one who appointed him as an apostle. Now, another phrase that Paul uses here that is quite unusual for him is, I think then, or I think that. The words I think occur only three times in the entire New Testament, and two of those times are right in this passage. Paul's very first words here are, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. And then he immediately says, I give an opinion by one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. And then the very next verse he says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Paul will use those words, opinion and think, yet again in the last verse of this passage in verse 40. Now one thing we must understand is that these qualifying statements in no way contradict Paul's declaration in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, where he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. Here in 1 Corinthians 7, it is by the same superintending work of the Holy Spirit who breathes out every other word of Scripture that Paul declares what he's saying is not a command of the Lord. The spirit of this passage is not fundamentally different than when Paul says in Romans 14 that what a Christian chooses to eat or drink... Is not a matter of submission to a command of God, but rather is a matter of the man's personal conviction before God. It is just as authoritative for Paul to say on behalf of God that in one matter, God places boundaries on us, and in another matter, God grants us great liberty. Are you with me? Both declarations are authoritative. The heart of Paul's exhortation in the preceding passage that we considered last week was this, that the station in life in which each believer finds himself when God brings him to faith in, him or her to faith in Christ, that station in life is not accidental. It is actually a calling ordained by God. God may very well change that station in life, but the Christian should not take it upon himself to force that change. Instead, every believer is called to agree with God that his well-being and his usefulness to God is bound up not in his circumstance, but in his union with Jesus Christ. As we saw last time, that truth applies even to the believer who is married to an unbeliever that has no interest, at least yet, in the things of the Lord. And the same principle applies even to slaves. It is good, not bad, Paul says, for a slave to seek to become a free man as long as he does not treat that freedom from servitude as the source of his well-being or of his usefulness to God. See, that's the issue here. In the rest of chapter 7 now, Paul turns his focus toward unmarried Christians. He has some things to say to the married, but he's, he's focusing very very uh, decidedly on unmarried Christians. And he applies the same principle to them. He says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. He already dealt with that last time. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty straightforward. If you're married, he says, if you're married, stay married. If you're not married, stay single. But then without skipping a beat, and this is critically important, he says, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Paul deals with two categories of Christians in that verse. The first is the Christian who was married and is now, quote, released. Now that could happen either because of the death of the spouse, or because of divorce that left the Christian free to marry. Based on the teachings of Jesus and of Paul, the only two scenarios in which a Christian could remarry after divorce would be if the unbelieving spouse abandoned the marriage... 1 Corinthians 7, or if, this, if the spouse had defiled the one-flesh relationship because of sexual immorality. Those are the only two possibilities that allow for remarriage. That's not popular these days, but that's, that's what seems to be, seems to be pretty clear. The second kind of single Christian that Paul addresses in verse 28 is the virgin who has never been married. And his counsel to both categories of single people is remain single. But again, he makes it crystal clear that if either, if in either of those situations the believer marries, he or she has not sinned. We have trouble with that. Like, we like things to be black and white. We like things to, we like our categories to be crystal clear, not many options. That's not the way Paul presents this, right? authoritatively, that's not the way Paul presents this. And so we have to deal with it as as it's given to us. In that same verse, verse 28, Paul immediately goes on to explain that his earnest desire behind this counsel to unmarried saints is to spare them from, quote, undue trouble in the flesh. Now, I believe what Paul means by the words in the flesh is simply during those believers' mortal lives. The word translated trouble or tribulation here is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 when he speaks of the great tribulation that will come upon the world in the end times. The word just essentially means trouble. Paul's wording here is clearly tied to verse 26 where he said, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So what is the present distress that he's talking about? Many Bible expositors make this a very narrow focus. They say that Paul's referring to a time-bound circumstance that the Corinthian saints were facing that was significantly significantly different than Christians in most ages have faced, most ages of the church. I don't think that's right. To you and me, it may seem very strange like a phrase that a, that a phrase like this present distress could apply to a circumstance that has so far lasted two thousand years. But present doesn't necessarily mean limited in duration, does it? And as Peter tells us in Second Peter three, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So so far it's been two days. The very next thing that Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 to 31, seems to me to confirm that his instruction to the church in this passage is not bound to a certain time or circumstance. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. The reason Paul presents in the first and last verse of that paragraph I just read, for the way of life he's exhorting Christians to live, is that the time has been shortened and the form of this world is passing away. In other words, earthly things aren't just temporary. They're short term. They will soon pass away. And beloved, if this world's days were numbered in Paul's lifetime, that number is a whole lot smaller today. The form of this world, the ways of this world, the literally the schema, the, the devices of this world are passing away. which Which means, I believe, that Paul's admonitions to the church in this passage are even more pertinent now than they were when he wrote them. His exhortation to believers to make excellent use of the short time that remains to us is not at all unusual in his letters. At the end of Romans 13, Paul likens the entirety of the Christian life to the last remaining hours of the nighttime before the dawn, before the sunrise. He exhorts believers in that passage to awaken from sleep, to lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light because we know that, quote, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. He said that 2,000 years ago. Again, two days ago. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, Paul says to the saints, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. They haven't become less evil, guys. No matter how we see this, The simple reality is that if we consider Paul's instruction here in the context of each individual Christian life, the time that remains to you and me to be useful to God in this desperately needy world is very brief. And we can all attest to the fact that it includes many troubles. I'm convinced that every Christian in every generation of the church of Jesus must approach Paul's words here very, very soberly and deliberately, not as some exceptional exhortation directed to a small group of Christians at one point in history, but as an exhortation to all Christians at all times. With that in mind, let me again read verses 29 to 31. Listen carefully. But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away." Now, Paul's not telling us to deny reality when he says these things. He's not telling married men to pretend that they're not married and to pay no attention to their wives so they can focus on following Christ. That would be a denial of everything that Paul teaches about marriage in every other passage. Again, this is the same apostle who told us husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church and to give ourselves up for our wives as Christ gave himself up for us. That's not a command to ignore your wives. What Paul is telling us here, I believe, is simply to get our priorities right. Beloved, this is, this is about not elevating the temporary to the level of the eternal. He's telling us who are married that God intends for our marriages to serve the advancement of Christ's agenda on earth, not to hinder that agenda. He's telling those who have more money than they need to make ends meet month to month, and even those who don't, that the way we handle money must reflect kingdom priorities and not temporary priorities. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Paul is telling those who are not married that God intends for those people, those Christians, to be very mindful of the fact that being unmarried opens up great opportunities to you to serve Christ that you simply will not have if and when you get married. Right now, if you're unmarried, you can drop what you're doing to meet a need that God sets before you far more easily than a married Christian can. You can pull up stakes and move into a new work of ministry without uprooting your wife from her job or your children from their schools and friendships, and you can risk your life and your livelihood for the sake of the gospel without risking someone else's for them. Single Christian, are you taking advantage of those opportunities or are you squandering your singleness on pastimes that do nothing to move you toward Christlikeness and to point other people to Christ. When Paul says that those who weep should be as though they did not weep, and that those who rejoice should be as those who do not rejoice, he's not contradicting his own words in Romans 12, 15, where he said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Not at all. He's saying, in effect, do not make the presence of pleasure or pain in your life, a barometer of your well-being. And don't cling to the pursuit of rejoicing and the avoidance of sorrow. I loved what, what Jim said this morning about Karen. She's she's in a rehab hospital. She's in severe pain. Her legs are swollen. And she looks at this this caregiver that's in the room with her and says, Are you okay? And this lady bears her soul to Karen and Karen gets to share the beauty of Christ with this, this dear lady. See, Karen, though she had every cause to weep, she was living as though that didn't define her. That didn't determine what she must do. You get it? You see what I'm saying here? What God? What Paul is saying here? It's about kingdom priorities. It's about an eternal view of things. If you believe that your well-being comes from the pursuit of rejoicing and the avoidance of weeping, you will make yourself useless to God. Live your life to glorify Christ and to move His agenda forward on this earth. It's an eternal agenda. If you don't want to needlessly add to the weeping part, don't be in a hurry to change your present station in life. Because, beloved, your station in life simply doesn't matter very much when it comes to your purpose for being here. And when God wants to move you, He's going to move you. I've had five careers. I had no idea that my life would take that path. No idea at all. And I don't regret any of it. Because at every phase of my life, God has He has given me marvelous opportunities, both to 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 know Him and to serve Him and to enter into the lives of other people with the with the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter that much what your station in life is. Instead of being bent on changing your circumstance, focus on using your circumstance to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And beloved, if you are single now, but you're convinced that you don't have the spiritual gift to stay single, which is almost universal, (laughs) don't waste your singleness while you have it. I'll say again, if and when you do marry, you will never again be able to respond to the needs of people around you with the same immediacy that you can right now. It won't be like that when you're married. If you're single and you believe God is calling you to go to the other side of the world to a people group that has had little or no exposure to the gospel of Jesus, or even if you just want to do that for Christ, you have the liberty to do so, both in terms of the revealed will of God. He likes it when Christians do things like that. And you have the freedom from earthly encumbrances that your singleness affords to you. At least for a time. It doesn't mean that married people don't get to go to the other side of the earth. It's just that they have more to consider when they do. If you are single, this passage should come, this passage should drive you to strongly consider whether the freedom from encumbrance that comes with being single might mean that it would be best for you to remain single. But whether you marry or don't marry, do what you do for the eternal glory of God. That's the one filter that always, always applies. In verses 32 to 35, Paul brings us to the goal of all of these admonitions in this part of the letter. And that goal... That he zeroes in on at the end of verse 35 is to move every believer literally toward or in the direction of undistracted devotion to the Lord. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. I'm going to read verses 32 to 35 and as I do I want you to listen for the words concern or concerned. That that word shows up five times in four verses. And I want you also to listen for the contrast between the things Paul calls the things of the world and those that he calls the things of the Lord. Listen. He says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. He is divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And then listen, he says, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to promote undistracted devotion To the Lord, to, to move you toward undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul is not presenting these admonitions to the married, to mess, to the unmarried, to mess up their lives. That's not his goal. He's not bent on depriving single people of good stuff. Think about it, guys. These words were breathed out by God through a man who had discovered real contentedness in every circumstance of his exceedingly difficult and constantly challenging life. That's what he says. I have learned in whatever circumstance I find myself to be content. Paul's days were filled with joy, peace, power, purpose, and eternal significance all while being truly contented. How many married people can say that? And how many unmarried people can say that? How many of us can say that? That's the goal. That's what Paul is after here, guys. When Paul said earlier in this chapter that he wished every Christian man could be as he is, that didn't come from a heart of arrogance or of legalism. It came from a heart of tender affection and genuine love for God and for His children. Us. When Paul speaks of undistracted devotion to the Lord, right at the end of that set of verses, he's talking about a life that concerns itself overwhelmingly with eternal things rather than with temporary things. And that, beloved, takes focus. It doesn't happen passively. It does not happen passively. How is it that God through Paul equates concern for pleasing your spouse with concern for, quote, the things of the world when God himself created marriage? I don't believe at all that Paul means it's sinful to thoughtfully consider and do things that please your spouse. In fact, I think that's an assignment for every husband from God. Unless, of course, your spouse's name is Jezebel or Herodias or something like that. (laughs) In other words, unless the things that please your spouse are repugnant in the eyes of God. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, after instructing wives to quietly and humbly submit to their husbands out of submission to the Lord, Peter commands Christian husbands and he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you. They are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Clearly, we husbands are not supposed to be unconcerned about the needs of our wives in the here and now. But we must understand that both we and our wives have been given a hope and a mission that will very soon leave the temporary concerns of this mortal life in the dust. And even the dust will be burned away and replaced with redeemed ground. In that message that John MacArthur did on the same passage, he said that Paul is reminding the saints here that marriage has no relationship to eternity. And I would add except, except as a picture of the eternal relationship between Christ and His church. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees tried to trip up Jesus with an elaborate story about a woman who had been passed from, as wife, from one brother to another until one at a time all seven brothers had died. The Pharisees asked Jesus in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be, for they all had her. (laughs) And Jesus' answer, as usual, was not what the Pharisees expected. He said to them, you are wrong. I love how he starts that. (laughs) Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And by the way, if you want to be wrong, there's your formula right there. Know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God, and you will be wrong. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Brother, if you're married, and you spend a whole lot of time staring at a photo of your wife while she's right there in the room with you, first, you better make sure it's a recent photo. But more to the point, your attention should overwhelmingly be on your wife, not on the picture of your wife. That doesn't mean that you take the photo out of its, out of its very visible location and you bury it in a drawer somewhere under a bunch of stuff. It just means that your wife is much more the focus of your attention and your affection than the picture of your wife, right? Marriage is a God-given, richly blessed, temporary, earthly representation or picture of a far far greater eternal reality. And that reality is the union between Christ and His bride, His church. At the heart of Paul's counsel both to the married Christian and the unmarried Christian is that the focus of our most fervent attention and deepest affection must always be on the eternal reality to which earthly marriage merely points. And that reality is that beautiful, everlasting union between Christ and His church. That reality is the possession and the future hope of every believer, whether married, unmarried, divorced, widowed, or even stuck in a lousy marriage. So if you're a single Christian, do not get married in order to finally lay hold of something worthy of your fervent attention and deepest affection. You already have that. You already have that incomparably worthy gift, and that gift is your own union with Christ together with all the redeemed of Christ. See, you already have the one and only perfect marriage. Let me say that again. Single person, if you're a believer in Jesus, you already have the one and only perfect marriage. If you do marry, and Paul very clearly says that you have the liberty in the Lord to do so, don't let anyone tell you that you don't. If you do marry, don't marry out of lack, but out of fullness. I talked about this some last week, but this is so very important, beloved. There are good reasons and bad reasons that young Christian men and women choose to marry. Marrying to finally be happy because you've never been happy being single is a pursuit that's doomed from the start. Marriage is a really, really bad move for unhappy people. If you're marrying to cure your loneliness, you need to know that some of the most desperately lonely people in the world are married. You marry to give, not to get. You marry to lay your life down for another person as Christ laid his life down for you, for us. You marry to love another person out of overflowing fullness, not out of unmet need. And if you're a Christian, that works out really well because God has lavished upon you the unfathomable riches of Christ. And nobody can take that away from you. A Christian who has no real, daily, durable joy in his relationship with the Lord really shouldn't get married. Joy is not the absence of sorrow or pain. Joy is delight in God that can't be undone by sorrow or pain. If you're not regularly experiencing that delight in God, please wait until you are before you get married. I was 27 years old, 26 years old when I I met my beloved Debbie. Every relationship I had before that was was unidirectional. You know what that means? Unrequited. You know what that means? It means I fell in love with them and they didn't fall in love with me. (laughs) And I, I did that a lot. And I was so unready to be married I was so unready to be married. I'd been a Christian since I was 16. But I praise God that He didn't let any of those, any of those combinations work out until I met Debbie. And, and what was so cool is that before I met her, I quit going, I quit looking to be married. And I'm not, please understand, I am not saying that Christians should not desire marriage. That young Christians, I'm not even saying that young Christians, that it's a bad thing at all for them to, to look at Christian dating ser- services. Some people hate that. I don't have a problem with that at all. But, beloved, don't treat marriage like it's going to make it well with your soul. If it's not well with your soul. Because it won't! It won't! And 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 God brought me to the point where I got that. I fundamentally, to the core of my being, got that. And so I quit agonizing over the fact that I was single. And you know what happened? I went to a wedding and and I... I was an usher. It was, it was Joyce, Joyce Lehman's daughter's wedding, Karen's wedding. And, and the groom was my dear friend from seminary. I went to that wedding and I was an usher and one of the groomsmen was late. And so I stood in for him and I escorted this beautiful lady named Debbie down the aisle. And a year later I did it again. He dropped her in my lap when I wasn't looking. It doesn't always work that way. But but my point, guys, is God wants you, He wants you to, to receive, if He grants you marriage, He wants you to receive that beautiful gift. Not as a substitute for Him, but as, but as an opportunity for you to be used by Him to pour out the overflowing love of Christ that He has lavished upon you to, to another person, to another human being. It's a beautiful assignment but it's not what a lot of people think marriage is. I can't resist sharing the second poem that Brother MacArthur quoted in his sermon on this passage. This one was from an older gentleman. He said, Of all the girls that I ever knew, I never saw one I thought would do. I wanted a wife that was nice and neat, that was up to date and had small feet. (laughs) I wanted a wife that was loving and kind and that hadn't too much an independent mind, I wanted a wife that could cook and sew and wasn't eternally on the go. I wanted a wife that was strikingly beautiful, intelligent, rich, and exceedingly dutiful. That isn't so much to demand in a wife, but she's still not found, though I've looked all my life. What makes us laugh at that poem is is that the man's expectations were so over the top but they're not so far removed from the expectations of many young Christian men and women. I have to say, and I may be wrong, certainly in individual cases, I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong, but I think the reason that a lot of young Christians don't get married is because they're looking for this this serendipity, this, this situation, this one person in the entire universe that's right for them. Do you know there are people in this room who whose marriages were arranged. And those are some of the strongest. Do you know that the divorce rate among arranged marriages is way lower than among marriages where the two people get to make the choice outright? I'm not saying marry anybody. You need to be really careful whom whom you marry. And you need to marry someone that loves the Lord so much that you have to go through Him to get to that person. But beloved, marriage... It's hard. And it requires prayerful, constant dependence upon God. And it will be tested. The union that God has created will be tested by God in ways you cannot even imagine when you enter into it. But He's faithful. And the, if that marriage is submitted to God, that love deepens and it becomes more and more beautiful in His sight and in your sight. And after 36 years of marriage with Debbie, I would never have imagined how blessed marriage could be. But, beloved, it's hard. All right, enough about that. Now, brothers and sisters, Paul's challenge to every one of us is about whom we value most highly. It's about where we look to find real well-being, peace, joy, and purpose. If we're looking to another human being for those things, God says to us, stop doing that and look over here. In verses 36 to 38, Paul spells out for us that his counsel to the unmarried to remain single is not a matter of bad versus good. It's a matter of good versus better. And it's really important that we get that right. Paul turns his attention in those verses to Christian fathers who in that culture had the very challenging task of deciding whether and whom their daughters would marry. I could spend a lot of time talking about whether that approach should ever have been abandoned by Christian families, but that would distract from the bigger and more important point. Paul tells the believing father that he has the freedom in the Lord to give his daughter in marriage, and if he does, he is not sinning. In fact, Paul says if he does, he does well. Those words mean what they sound like they mean. But Paul says if he does not give his daughter in marriage, he will do better. And he already gave us the reasons for declaring singleness to be an advantage to believers living in these last days. What I want to make sure we don't get wrong here is that Paul's contrast between good and better absolutely must not be turned into a contrast between bad and good. And we, in our endless legalism, tend to do that with good and better propositions. Do we not? You and I don't get to turn a matter of Christian liberty into a matter of Christian obligation. Not ever. It's perfectly fine for us to point our brothers and sisters to this passage and to encourage them to prayerfully consider the very real advantages of singleness, perhaps especially as persecution against the church gains steam in this present cultural context, but it is not fine for you or me to presume to tell another believer what he or she must choose in this regard. The one caveat that Paul sets before us in these final verses that is not a matter of Christian liberty is in verse 39. That verse is directed toward the believing widow who is no longer required to submit to the wishes of her earthly father that applied when she was an unmarried virgin. Paul's instruction here includes something every Christian must embrace when considering marriage. He says the widow is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. That means if she marries, she must marry a believer. Missionary dating and missionary marriages are a special kind of foolishness that is actually a lot worse than foolishness. It is a defiance of the clearly revealed will of God. If a Christian chooses to marry, he or she must marry a believer. It's not a matter of liberty. It's a matter of obligation. And that should be the end of any further discussion on that matter. Paul ends this passage by saying of the widow, but in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the spirit of God. Yet again, his counsel To widows to remain single is not presented as a command of the Lord, but as a matter of good and better. Our little flock here at CBC has been richly blessed with an abundance of evidence of the opportunities available to a believing widow to be useful to God, especially in the later years of her life when her children have households of their own. God has a richly and abundantly blessed our extended family here at CBC with exceedingly faithful sisters whose husbands have gone before them into the presence of the Lord. Throughout the history of this local body, those dear women have been among the most faithful and mightily useful servants of God in our midst. Women like Barbara Crandall and Gail Humphreys and Virginia Lockey and Virginia Obrey, and Patty Vaughn, and Joy Kenney. The loving service that these dear sisters have given to many in our body is a beautiful reminder to us all that the marriage that makes every child of God both fulfilled and eternally useful is the everlasting union of every believer with Christ and of Christ with his bride his church dear father we thank you as always for the clarifying and enabling power of your word we thank you for this beautiful passage which reminds us who alone is worthy of our undistracted attention and affection and our deepest devotion our savior our master the beautiful husband of the bride the lover of our souls, Jesus. It's in His precious name that we pray. Amen.